I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3, our gospel lesson this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the longing to see you come and break in, and we thank you that you in so many ways, in countless people, you break into our, our Advent seasons and you speak words of life. You speak gospel and good news to us. You make us alive even in the midst of the wilderness. And so we ask that you would do that again here this morning. You are our hope. The message of your gospel is our aim and our desire to hear this morning. And so would you make that happen by your spirit? We need you to wash us in the water of the word. We pray this, and we ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. I said at the beginning, eight days, and I mean it. Eight days, guys. Kids, we're just eight days away from Christmas morning. Who's excited? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm still like a kid. What are you looking forward to the most? I bet you I know the answer to that. I bet you I know. When I was a kid, the thing that I looked forward to the most was opening presents. Yeah? Who, who, are, who are the shakers of presents in the room? Like my brother. Yeah, that was not me. Don't do that. Don't, don't, spoil the, don't spoil the surprise. You should wait. You should wait. I never understood, though, how mom and dad didn't really care about what they got for Christmas. I didn't get that. That was... It was foreign to me. I would pin all of my hopes upon what was under the tree. Even if I didn't shake them, that was where my hope lies, in that present. And if when I opened that present under the tree, I got what I wanted, something I asked for, man, ooh, that, was, that was awesome. Or even better, something I didn't ask for, but it was better than I expected. It was something I didn't even think of, but it was the best thing up. And you open the present, and you're like, yes, yes, I got the present. And then what's the very next thing you do, kids? What's the very next thing? Are there, are there any, any other presents under the tree for me? Any other presents on it with my name on it? No? Or if you're like my family, after opening all the presents... Oh, I forgot about the stockings. We do stockings last. It's sort of like the cherry on the top. It's at the end. So Christmas morning is kind of like an Apple announcement event. When Apple has a big announcement event, here's a new accessory, here's a new computer, here's a new phone, and there's always, what, one more thing. One more thing right at the end until there isn't anymore, and it's over, and the event is over. It's like a team pursuing the goal of winning the championship at the end of the season. And with each success and every win, we as fans and the team, they're all building up to this very end. And even if they win, when they win, maybe they go on vacation for a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe even a whole month. But then... What are we doing to prepare for the upcoming season, for the next championship, the next season? Opening the present wasn't what we had hoped it would be. It wasn't what we really wanted. Now, 
I'm going to throw a big idea out there, and I'm going to be marinating on that this whole morning. Here's the big idea. I want to submit to you that the very best part about Christmas, about this season or else this day that we're looking forward to, is the feeling of excited anticipation that you have when you first wake up on Christmas morning. That's the high point. Hear, hear this. Anticipation has been building, and you're right there. You're right there at the fulfillment of this, all this anticipation, but the high point is actually that feeling, that excited rush or feeling that even my mom and my dad felt on Christmas morning when they looked at our faces and everyone was still pumped up and excited. That's the high point. There it is, right there. That final jolt of almost realized longing about to be, fulfill, about to be fulfilled. That feeling of getting that present that I wanted isn't really the high point. It's not. It, it fails. I didn't want to win the championship. I didn't want to buy the iPhone at the end of the event. I wanted the anticipation. I wanted the anticipation. I could quote Blaise Pascal here, but I'm not. I'm passing over that. The joy of waking up on Christmas morning is the greatest joy. It's the greatest joy. We light candles on Christmas Eve, anticipating that joy anticipating the sunrise we are so excited for christmas day that like when school gets out a couple days or maybe even a week before christmas that feeling the anticipation of the anticipation is one of the best feelings am i right kids when you get out of school it's almost like a little mini christmas it's all anticipation so in other words advent this season or this moment or these Sequences of moments of anticipated joy is what we're made for, is what we're made to live in, in that place of almost there, it's right there, anticipation. This is Gaudete Sunday. That's what we're here to celebrate, in other words. It's Rejoice Sunday. Gaudete is how pretentious Anglicans say Latin rejoice. That's what it means. That's this pink candle in front of us when the darker purple of Advent is lightened. It's, it's lightened just a little bit to, to pink. Joy sort of breaks in. It lifts us up. It lightens us just a little bit as we wait for Christmas. This is Gaudete Sunday. In many ways... This is how C.S. Lewis described his entire life in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, or else Surprised by Rejoicing. He says this, in a sense, in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. It's about nothing else. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. So this anticipation of full satisfaction, even if I don't have the satisfaction yet, is more satisfying than all the little satisfyings I get, Lewis says. Lewis would later describe in this autobiography this inconsolable longing as a kind of pain in your gut, this, this pain in your stomach, a stab, and he calls it, it might even be called unhappiness. We might even call it unhappiness or grief. But then, says Lewis, it is a kind of unhappiness that we want. 
kind of strange, I know, it's kind of strange. Lewis goes on to say, all joy, in other words, all joy reminds. It reminds, it is never a possession, it's never, it's never a desire. So for Lewis, a pleasure or desire is once we've grasped hold of a desire. But joy is never a possession it's always a desire for something about to be. And I think he's right. I think he's absolutely right. This is not only the theme of his autobiography. It's the, it's, this is what John is doing in The Pilgrim's Regress. It's the floating islands of Paralandria. It's the weight in his most famous sermon, in Lewis's most famous sermon. It's the weight in the weight of glory. It's this inconsolable secret inside every person. The desire for something that hasn't quite yet happened, he says, the scent of a flower we have not found. I love that. I love that. The human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given. That's in the preface to the Pilgrim's Regress. The human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given. He has another essay. I could go on about this all the time. My, my, it's probably my favorite articulation of this. He, he describes human beings as two-legged donkeys, two-legged donkeys uh, who have a carrot always out in front of us. And just the smell of the carrot that we'll never get to is more satisfying than any other meal that we'll ever have. And so get that image out of your head, you donkeys like me. All right, okay. All right, that's enough Lewis. That's enough Lewis. Winning the championship or else finally eating that food, that food you're looking forward to, opening the present, the completion of pleasure was never meant to fully and finally satisfy us. John chapters 1 through 8, so turning our attention to John's gospel, you see satisfaction in marriage being talked about. You, you see the moment of feeling a pleasure when emotional and relational desires are finally met. You see this sort of anticipation. You see the levity of feasting and drinking wine at a celebration with friends. You see the rush of joy felt when you came up out of the waters of baptism. You see this. The happiness you feel when a prayer is answered, even a blind, lame, and paralyzed beggar now you see. Now you move about freely. You can stand and you can walk and you can enter into the temple and worship. When after being hungry for days, you finally eat and are satisfied with a full meal, a great meal. The excitement you felt when you heard a great sermon, all of these lightnings, all these anticipations, all these little joys and pleasures filled in the first eight chapter of John's gospel. And all of these lightnings, all of these pleasures satisfied in John's gospel, none of these are bad. None of these are bad, but they're never the point. They're never the end. It's never the end of the road. They're fleeting. They're fleeting if they are the end. If, if they're the thing you're aiming for, it just passes away really quickly. The joy and satisfaction goes away. So they're not bad, but they're preparatory. They're not the end, but they're on the way. Or as we said last week, we saw last week, they're not the point. They point to the point. 
All of all these anticipations surround our gospel reading. And John the Baptist, he stands again. So we got a little John the Baptist series this Advent. I didn't anticipate it, but here it is. Here it is. John the Baptist, he stands in the middle of all these longings in John's first, particularly the first six chapters. But right in the middle of these longings in our gospel lesson from John chapter 3, I think in many ways, this is where anticipation and fulfillment are finally coming together. All of these threads, all these anticipations are coming together in our text. Like one who stands smiling as the best man at his best friend's wedding day. This is the image. At least 14 times John is mentioned, John the Baptist If you're confused by many Johns in this, John the Gospel writer, John the Baptist, I'm going to quote John Chrysostom later, try not to get too confused, but John the Baptist is mentioned 14 times in the first five chapters of John's Gospel, 14 times, and our Gospel lesson from John 3 is the final scene that he's involved in, in this Gospel, and in this scene, several key themes for the Apostle John So the gospel writer, they come together in John the Baptist. So John, as if he is joining himself with two or three witnesses, John the Baptist and John the Apostle come together and they are a unified witness, a unified voice. Here's three themes as we sort of consider what is John saying here in this text. Here's three themes that are coming together here. First, there's baptism all over the first chapters of John's gospel. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist came baptizing. In John chapter 3, famously, it begins with a discussion with Nicodemus about the new birth. And what, what is said in there, unless one is born of water and spirit. This is a reference to baptism. John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how God is redeeming the world. And immediately after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus at the beginning of John chapter 3, We have a discussion of John the Baptist's ministry of baptism in the end of chapter 3. And that's compared with, and this is kind of different and strange maybe for some of us, with Jesus' baptism. So John's baptism is compared with Jesus' baptism. John chapter 4, after our reading, the gospel writer clarifies that Jesus himself didn't baptize. Jesus didn't baptize in water. Only his disciples did, and they did a lot of baptisms. So, here's the question in our gospel reading that's sort of bringing all these texts together. Whose baptism is better? This is the question at the beginning of our reading. John the Baptist's disciples, they want to dispute and determine whose ministry came from whom and which is better. Debates about baptism go back pretty early, guys, even to the life of Jesus. But there's more than simply baptism that is coming together in our reading. And baptism is overlaid with maybe a more prominent and a more specific theme in John's first chapters in the wilderness. And it's water. It's water, and it's hinted at in our reading in verse 23 of John chapter 3. John was baptizing in a certain place in the wilderness And it's added because water was plentiful there. It's kind of like, why is that there? Why is that there? Why why is he mentioning water even again? So here's the second theme that's coming together in our gospel reading. 22 times water is mentioned, and this is specifically the word water. It's implied and referred to over and over again in the first five chapters of John's gospel alone. So John chapter 1 
John was sent by God to baptize with what, guys? Yeah, water. With water. John chapter 2, at the beginning of John chapter 2, stone water jars were filled at the wedding at Cana and turned into wine. And I'll come back to wine here in a minute. John chapter 3, at the beginning of John chapter 3, speaking about being born from a Born again from above, you must be born of water and spirit. John chapter 4 and verse 1. So at the beginning of all these chapters, here's water discussions. Jesus goes to Jacob's well to do what? To draw water. To draw water. And he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman about drinking living water. Living water. Chapter, chapter 4 and verse 13 Jesus says this, everyone who drinks of this water, of this living water, will be, or this water that's in this well, Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And later in chapter 4 and verse 28, the woman left her water jar. She left her water jar behind and she went to town and everyone was amazed by what she said. Later in chapter 4 and verse 46, Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee. Why would he mention Cana in Galilee? Where, John says, he made the water wine. He, just, he wants you to pay attention. He wants you to pay attention. Even with these little introductions, he wants us to pay attention. And he heals an official's son. Chapter 5 begins. Jesus goes to a pool. A pool is filled with what, guys? With water. Uh, the pool of Bethesda. And it's a famous spring near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem that had healing properties. And he has a conversation with a with a blind and lame and paralyzed man, and without going into the water, without this man going into the water, Jesus heals him. He's been hoping to get into the water to be healed, and Jesus speaks a word, and he's healed. So one more theme, one more theme. The third theme that comes together in our reading in John chapter 3 is that of purification. Purification. John chapter 3 and verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. John's disciples are the instigators, clearly, in this text. They're the ones who want to have the discussion, and we find out a little bit more why later. Water, and this is, this is pretty common and commonly known, but I'll say it clearly. It was used for purification, we wash our hands with water. We do that kind of thing. But specifically in view here is ceremonial washings. Your translation might say, instead of purification, ceremonial washings. In other words, rites of, of access into the temple or rituals of preparation to wash our hands ritually to be clean. And the six stone jars gathered at the wedding feast early in chapter 2 in Cana were used for, John says specifically, Jewish rites of purification. Purification. And this is the only other time 
this word is used in John's gospel. In John 3 and in John chapter 2, purification. But it's, it's not just a word study. So it's not just about finding this word and figuring out, oh, he's talking about purification. There's a whole lot more going on. And the wedding feast is sort of a clue. It's a turn for help us to understand what is coming together in John, the gospel writer's imagination. What is the water turned to? Wine. It's turned to wine. John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman to drink his living water. And just a few chapters later in John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000 bread in the wilderness, Jesus says, I am not just the living water, I am the living bread came, that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Hear this in John chapter 6, starting in verse 51. And I'm going to read several verses because they're important. In many ways, this is summarizing all of this conversation about water and wine and even blood. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus says. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my flesh. goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as, and here's this word living again, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Living water, living bread, the living Father, whoever feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers who ate and died, and you could say in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There's a lot coming together. There's a lot coming together here. When John baptized his cousin Jesus in chapter 1, in chapter 1, John proclaimed, and this is unique in John's gospel, about John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Living water and living bread that goes down into that water, or else water turned to wine. Or else, wine that is blood. This Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they're coming together. And this is the living Father made manifest in the Son who lives and dies for the world. This is all at the beginning of John's Gospel. All of these Old Testament anticipations, all of these longings for satisfaction, for broken bodies in need of healing, for those who are empty, longing to be filled, for thirst quenched finally and fully, for sins forgiven, for the King or the Messiah to finally come and take the throne. All of this and so much more come together at the beginning of John's Gospel. And it's summarized in the ministry of John the Baptist. How, how, how are all these themes coming together in our Gospel reading? That's what I've been considering a lot this week. Now, you might expect me 
as an Anglican, you might expect me to immediately go to baptism and the Lord's Supper. I very well could do that. I hope that you see that those are clearly right here at the beginning of the John's Gospel. John's Gospel um, is, is sort of uh, unique among the other Gospel writers. He doesn't have a great commission or else a command to go baptize. And he's the only Gospel writer who doesn't have a Last Supper. He doesn't have a Last Supper in his, in his Gospel. And I think there's no question, I think there's no question that the Apostle John wants us to consider deeply holy baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's, it's kind of unavoidably obvious in the first six chapters for sure, if not in the rest of the gospel. But even these sacraments, and this is really important, the sacraments given to us by Jesus are anticipations. They're not the thing itself. They're not, they're not unwrapping the present. It's Christmas morning. They're anticipations. They point to something. They point to that inconsolable longing deep within every one of us, which we think is going to be satisfied with a lot of good stuff, with a lot of good stuff, with marriage or when we win the championship or when we unwrap the best present under the tree. Yay, I'm so glad I got Legos. Sorry, Lego. Sorry, Jody, Jody corrected me right there. That's awesome. Lego, there's no S on the plural of Lego. That's all for the Lego nerds in the room here. It all comes together, but they're all anticipations here. Water and purification and bread and wine and body and blood, these are all pointing somewhere. They're all anticipating what we were made for. And I think John the Baptist points to the answer, and he does this over and over again and clearly in our text. Look with me at John chapter 3 and verse 28. Here it is. John says this, You yourselves bear me witness. You bear me witness. What did I say? That, that I said, from the very beginning I said this, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John proclaimed. He witnessed to this reality. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must de decrease. And so evangelicals are right. Hear this. There is, I think there's clearly sacramental theology all over the beginning of John's gospel. Holy baptism and the Lord's Supper are worthy to be considered from these texts. But here is the center. Here it is. The witness of the gospel, and specifically the witness of John the Baptist, and hearing. This is, this is what John is fulfilling and anticipating right before the fullness of Jesus coming onto the scene. The witness and hearing. Hearing the voice of the bridegroom. And this is the point. This is why we have Advent. This is why we have Advent. This is the point of every inconsolable longing or what Lewis calls sin-sooked. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sin-sooked, this inconsolable longing. And he translates this, this longing as joy. It seems so strange to me. What Lewis calls 
joy, that he was surprised by joy, but it's almost kind of like a grief. It's an anticipation. It's a longing. John stands as the disciple, as a disciple. He no longer sits. So he's standing, and he no longer sits as rabbi among his disciples. He stands for his rabbi has come. On his best friend's wedding day, John, the best man, he stands to give a speech, to testify, to witness to the arrival of the bridegroom, anticipated from the beginning of creation. John chapter 1 and verse 1, from the beginning of creation, even before the creation, he stands as God's witness. John stands up on Christmas morning, he stands up as God's witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through his witness. John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. His testimony was simple. I am not the Christ. And in case you forgot, I am not the Christ. I am not the one. I am not the Messiah. Behold, here is the Christ. Here is the prophet. I'm not the prophet. Here is the prophet. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the Son of God. Here is the Son of Man. All anticipation is pointing to this, to this present right in front of your face. Heaven and earth ascend and descend upon this, on this proclamation. John proclaimed the message of the gospel of his cousin, Jesus. And, and it's so interesting, in John chapter 2, Andrew heard John the Baptist's proclamation. Andrew heard John the Baptist's proclamation, and he told his brother Peter, and after Jesus' ascension, Jesus proclaimed this message again. So you have John the Baptist at the end of the old, and then you, you sort of have this handoff by means of John, by means of Andrew, to Peter, bookending the point. Book ended the point. Verse 29 of chapter 3, Jesus' cousin, his friend, stood up and he listens. He doesn't just witness, but he listens to the groom and joy itself. This, the language is interesting. Joy rejoices in verse 29. Joy rejoices or rejoices greatly. Joy itself rejoices at the sound of of his voice, at the sound of his voice, every longing, every anticipation, every type, every waking up on every Christmas morning throughout all the ages, every baptism, every marriage, every time we gather at the table and nibble on crumbs, and take little sips, every inconsolable longing, my joy, John says, my joy is now filled up, it's filled up. It's complete, right here, like a water jar, which is overflowing. My joy is complete. He's here. Jesus must increase. If he doesn't increase, then I will have nothing to pour out. I'll have nothing to pour out. If he doesn't increase and I don't decrease, there will be no life for the world. This is his proclamation. We are all satisfied with mud pies. We, 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 we just go eat whatever, and we think it's going to satisfy. We, we hope for the unwrapping of the present to be the thing that will satisfy us. We drink every day from broken cisterns, broken jars, 
when overflowing jars of water turned to wine are offered to us. Offered to us. Lewis reflects in an, in an essay on this reality. I am quite ready to describe sin suit. I'm quite ready to describe it as, and this is how he describes it, this joy, this inconsolable longing. He describes it as spilled religion. It's a, it's a provocative phrase, spilled religion. Provided it is not forgotten the spilled drops may be full of blessing to the unconverted man who licks them up. If you're filled up with joy, if you're filled up with longing, and it spills out, it spills out of us, even the little drops, the little licks, will be enough to satisfy the unconverted man and therefore begins to search. He tastes the lick and he searches for the cup whence they were spilled. He's looking for the cup, for the drops will be taken by some whose stomachs are not yet sound enough for the full drink. This is how Lewis describes the joy, or else the joy of hearing and witnessing Jesus. Hearing, 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 listening, delighting in the sound of his voice and witnessing to that as spilled religion. The whole man, Lewis says, in the weight of glory is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. And we, we could just taste little drips that have dropped onto the ground and be more satisfied than anything else that we long for. John the Baptist shows us how to drink joy. That's what, he, that's what he's doing in this Advent. To stand and hear his master's voice, his cousin's voice, the friend, the bridegroom, at the sound of his speaking, joy itself rejoices and joy is filled up and complete. Signs and miracles, this is a major theme in John's gospel, they fill this whole gospel, but the words, the words, the voice of Jesus brings fullness of joy. From the beginning of the gospel to the very end, it's the words that bring life. His testimony, the witness to his testimony. John Chrysostom asked this question, how is the bride brought home? How, how is the bride brought home to meet their joy, to meet their bridegroom? He says, by a voice and by teaching. By a voice and by teaching, this is how the church is wedded to God. Not not primarily these anticipations. It's this teaching, this voice, the gospel proclamation. This is how we are wedded to God. To stand and hear him to, in Chrysostom is in this my joy is fulfilled. To stand and to hear him in this my joy is fulfilled. So I invite you to stand, to stand and hear him. Every sign, every sacrament, every baptism, every washing, every Christmas, every wedding, every miracle, every longing is pointing, is anticipating this joy. Do you want to stop being perpetually unsatisfied? Listen, listen. Pay attention to what you're drinking in and what you're hearing. Do you want to stop being let down by every spiritual 
high moment, chasing after some sort of spiritual experience. Every time you open a Christmas present and are still left longing, listen, stand and listen and witness and overflow with the joy of his presence. Drink the living water from heaven and run and tell the village. Eat your fill of bread and fish and stay to eat flesh and drink blood. Stand up in this in-between season, in this Advent with John the Baptist, in that place of hopeful anticipation and of waiting. Stand up and listen and speak and listen and speak. Joy rejoices in that place. Joy rejoices at the sound of his voice. His voice can sustain you in the wilderness It can sustain you this Advent, and this simple message passed along by a simple messenger can sustain you, and you can sustain others in prison, even if we're anticipating our heads being chopped off. This is the good news of the gospel, according to John the Baptist, and this is joy complete, made full in Christ alone, every anticipation pointing to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.